Today we arrive at 1 Samuel 21. Would you turn there with me? And we're, we're going to read also Mark 2, starting in verse 23, immediately after that passage, but I will display it for us as we read it. Let's stand as we read God's Word. 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the situation about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is on an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. You may be seated, and before we pray, I want to have us read this next passage together, as you can see behind me. Mark 2, verses 23 to 28. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they not doing what is lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Let's pray. Father, as we read your word today, I pray for wisdom, insight, understanding for all of us. I ask that you would be glorified in what we talk about today, that we would be directed in our attention and our hearts to your throne. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, one of the things we are going to talk about today is we do, every time we come across a topic in a particular passage is the Sabbath, but we talked about the Sabbath six months ago when we covered Hebrews, and at that time we discussed some of the elements that are brought out specifically in, in Hebrews, such as uh, what does it mean as an eternal rest, what is the work of the Sabbath, etc., and how does that correlate with some of the themes of Hebrews. So we're not going to go over that again today. But there is something significant about the fact, isn't there, that Jesus refers to 1 Samuel 21 as evidence for why he and his disciples were able to pick and eat grain on the Sabbath. So we do want to ask some of the questions that are brought up in 1 Samuel 21. We want to see what they add, especially in Jesus' comments in Mark 2, to our understanding. But before we get there, 
Let's understand what's going on in 1 Samuel 21. In past weeks, we've seen David's faith in confronting Goliath. We've seen his covenantal faithfulness and love for Jonathan and Jonathan's descendants. We've also looked at the life of Saul. We've seen his reactions to David's popularity. And unfortunately, David's consistent godliness only tended to increase Saul's jealousy and the desire to remove David permanently. So that's as it begins to prepare us for chapter 21, when David finally came to grips with the fact that it was only a matter of time before he failed to leap out of the way of a spear thrown at him, he decided to flee for his life. That's where 1 Samuel 21 comes into play. His first stop is just a few miles south at the city of Nob, where Ahimelech the priest served. And there are some historical details that can only be pieced together by references here and there in 1 Samuel. For example, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we learn that Eli the high priest and his sons had served at a place named Shiloh. However, 1 Samuel 22.19 tells us that Nob became the city of the priests. Was the Shiloh sanctuary destroyed during encounters with the Philistines? Archaeologists actually believe that while the city was invaded by the Philistines, that the tabernacle was able to be moved, and it was moved to Nob. Nob became the city and the focal of worship for uh, the kingdom of Israel. And we don't have uh, any specific references in the Bible or outside the Bible to the destruction of Shiloh, uh, but just archaeological discovery. So that's one thing. According to 1 Samuel 19... David visited Samuel at Ramah to seek advice regarding his situation with Saul. Now in 1 Samuel 21, he goes to Ahimelech, the priest, who was the great-grandson of Eli. Many think that he was, in fact, a high priest at this time and was succeeded after his death by Abiathar, which is the name that you may have noted that Jesus mentions in Mark 2 when he says this is the time of Abiathar. Well, whatever the case may be, it is significant that David goes to find help from the nation's prophet and the nation's priest. He wants to do things right. But both in different ways are not exactly on good terms with Saul. And whatever issues Ahimelech may have had with Saul, unfortunately, he is not overjoyed to see David. Right? Did you read that there? We read in verse 1 that Ahimelech is afraid when he comes out to meet David. In fact, the word in Hebrew means to shudder in great terror. It is the same word used in chapter 13 to describe the Israelites' fear when they gathered against the Philistines. It's the word used in chapter 16 to describe the elders of Bethlehem and their reaction to Samuel when he visited their town. 1 Samuel 16, 4 says that Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town, it says, trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? And I think we can see from those examples that Ahimelech probably was wondering the same thing about David. Was David there peaceably? He's a national hero. Most would consider him a challenger to the throne. Is it possible that Ahimelech wondered if David saw him as one of Saul's staff? 
thus intending to get rid of him. It's likely the case because Ahimelech asks him, why are you alone? And you need to be putting into that question the tone of, did you come to get rid of me secretly? For the moment, however, David seeks to put his fears to rest, and he says, the king has ordered me on some business and said to me, do not let anyone know about the business on which I send you or what I have commanded you, and I have directed my young men to such and such a place. Now, his response at this point in seeing Ahimelech's reaction to his arrival is, is certainly a made-up story. Whether he was ever given such a commission when he worked with Saul, we don't know, but clearly at this point he's fleeing from Saul. And so Saul did not send him to Ahimelech on secret business. We should call it what it is and simply say that David has deceived Ahimelech. Not even David, the Lord's anointed, though, can get away with that. And in fact, David's deception will have disastrous consequences, won't it? For those of you who know the story of Ahimelech, you know in the next chapter that because David deceived him into thinking that he was on the king's business and therefore convinced Ahimelech to help him, Saul condemns Ahimelech and his entire family to death. And it's a sad moment for David who will later confess, I'm to blame for placing Ahimelech in that predicament. But going back here to our chapter, to chapter 21, David says, you can see it there, now then, what do you have on hand? It, as it happened, and as David would know, the priest had bread at the tabernacle. It was the holy bread that was intended on the Sabbath for the priests alone to eat. Look at what Leviticus 24 says about this bread. You shall take fine flour, bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. You shall put them in two piles, six on a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that I may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is for, from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. And so you can see from that that this bread is only for the priests. It's to be eaten in the holy place in the Sabbath, and that bread was a most holy portion of the Lord's food offerings. So what made David think that he and his men, none of whom were priests, could eat the bread simply because they were hungry? It's an important question we have to ask. And for that matter, what made Ahimelech think that he could offer the bread to David? Even if David met the condition of purity that Ahimelech requires in verse 4. But we'll answer that question in a moment. But for now, I'm going to leave you thinking about that. And I want to return to the Mark 2 passage. Where Mark 2 says that it was a Sabbath day. And Jesus and his disciples were walking in the fields. And as they were walking there, they plucked some grain, but they were not stealing grain. In fact, according to Deuteronomy 23:25, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So this was certainly allowed, and that wasn't the issue, was it? 
Apparently, Jesus and his disciples were being watched closely, and some Pharisees immediately raised the question of their doing something that was not lawful on the Sabbath, harvesting grain, in their opinion, whether by sickle or by hand, was work. And the exchange with the Pharisees could easily have become a debate about what was and wasn't lawful on the Sabbath and whether plucking some heads of grain and rubbing them in your hands constitutes harvesting and threshing. That's the kind of discussion that the Pharisees wanted to have. They wanted to trap Jesus in this theological dilemma. But that's not where Jesus goes, is it? Instead, he brings up something that would have seemed, so to speak, out of left field. He appeals to the account of David. He appeals to our morning's passage. And he says, they ate the consecrated bread. And it's not, he doesn't mention this because he saw that David's need was one of an emergency or of necessity. Let me say that in a different way, in fact. Jesus wasn't saying, it's okay to break the law if the situation requires it. David was starving to death, so it was an exception. That's not what Jesus is saying in Mark 2. Rather, Jesus is exposing the fact that the Pharisees had so buried the proper understanding of the Sabbath under their own rigid and narrow interpretations that they'd missed the whole point of the Sabbath in the first place. What David did, Jesus says, was lawful. And therefore, what Jesus' disciples were doing was also lawful, no matter what the Pharisees and the rabbis said. And before I address why David and Jesus, what they did was lawful, let me say Jesus, of course, does not repudiate Sabbath observance. What he did was put the Sabbath back into its proper context and show us its true purpose. God gave the Sabbath for man's benefit. It is a day of rest. It is a day for us to focus upon the things of the Lord. God did not give the Sabbath so that a bunch of self-professed Bible scholars would create volumes of rules and regulations about what should and should not be done. Because that kind of mindset, the pharisaical mindset, destroys the whole purpose of the Sabbath. It turns it from a day of joy and rest into a day of making sure what we do or don't do is on a list of permissible versus forbidden activities, which ultimately leads to whether man is righteous in his own works or not. What are we supposed to do with the Sabbath? Well, first, and this is, this is a little bit of a summary, again, because we're dealing with the topic We don't observe the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday. That wasn't a necessary change, by the way. We still could have celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday. The early church, though, chose to change the rest day to Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And from that moment on, Christians have met for worship on Sundays. In that sense, the Lord's Day, Sunday, has become the Christian Sabbath, but it's still just like Saturday for the Jews, is a Sabbath day. You may be wondering if I'm allowed by Scripture to say that. But 
just as a quick overview, remember, as we've covered the Sabbath not that long ago, as I said a few months ago, the first reference to the Sabbath is in Genesis 2. And that reference says, Thus the heavens and the earth, all the hosts of them were finished, and on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. And as I have said many times before, Genesis does not say God blessed Saturday and sanctified it. It doesn't say God blessed Sunday. Why not? Because there were no calendar days at the time, right? There were no Saturdays or Sundays or Mondays for quite some time. What there were were seven 24-hour periods that constituted a week. And God says his people are to rest on one day out of every seven. I also want you to note that the command to rest one day out of every seven is given long before the law is ever given to Moses. One of the reasons why this whole topic of the Sabbath is so controversial is that the argument actually centers around whether the fourth commandment, you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, still applies. Well, even if we were to argue that some of the commandments aren't specifically restated in the New Testament, we still have the fact that God commanded Adam and his descendants, which I trust includes all of us here today, to rest one day in seven. And that's what the word Sabbath means, by the way. It means rest. It is true that the law is helpful in understanding what we're supposed to do on a day of rest. It's helpful for us to understand that it was important enough and significant enough for God to put it, if you will, in the top ten. But... Ironically, it wasn't to rest per se, at least not in the way that a lot of people think of rest, that God created the Sabbath. You see, many people think that the Sabbath means that we go home and take naps. That's a type of resting, but it's not what God means when he talks about a Sabbath. What he means is what we find in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, male servant, female servant, cattle, stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth to see all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. And again, note the backwards reference. Moses is saying this is established at the creation not established at Mount Sinai. God blessed the Sabbath day. He hallowed it. The fourth commandment gives clarity to Israel, but it doesn't create the Sabbath. And more importantly, Exodus 20 explains that God means rest in the sense of stopping something. But what is it? What is it that we're stopping or resting from? Not all activity but rather our normal labor, our normal work. Stopping the things that we typically do that advance our own purposes and earning an income and maintaining a home, etc. In fact, God is so serious that his people observe the Sabbath that it was one of the few crimes for which he prescribed the death penalty. Some folks really struggle with this verse from Exodus 31 where it says, 
that everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Why? Because God says the Sabbath is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. See, I I think we forget that element of the Sabbath often, which is this symbolic evidence. This is a, in essence, a, a sign, as God says, between me and the children of Israel. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and then the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. One of the things that we symbolize in our own desires to rest is not just being obedient to something that we don't understand or don't care for, but we actually symbolize by our actions the very action of God, and therefore we declare by our actions that we believe God exists, that this is a God of order, that this, is, this represents what God does. He created in six days and rested on the seventh. Because the whole world wants to do what? It wants to make seven days all about me. Now, two questions arise. One is, what is so important about a sign that God created all things? And I hope I've answered that for you a little bit. It says that God is the king of the universe. And two, was the Sabbath just for Israel? But I hope I also answered that also earlier in that this was a creation ordinance. Now, by changing our own Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday... The Lord's Day not only reminds us of God's work in creation, it becomes a symbol for us, of a sign for us that we are and belong to God's, but it also reminds us that because of Christ's death and resurrection that took place on Sunday, 2,000 years ago, we can rest from our labor of trying to earn our salvation. That also is included in this idea of a Sabbath rest. The Lord's Day is a picture to us of what awaits us in heaven. When we at long last enter into the presence of the Lord, and there are no more labors from which to rest. And so it's not only a sign of what God did in the past, it's a sign of what God did in Christ, it's a sign of what God will be doing in the future. And so we demonstrate our gratitude to God by enjoying all the benefits of this wonderful day that we call the Sabbath. Now, let's apply all of that to solving the problem of 1 Samuel 21 and Mark 2. Why was it lawful? Why was it all right for David to eat the holy bread that was intended for the priests? And why was it all right for Jesus and the disciples to pick and eat grain on the Sabbath? Well, in the 400-year period between the last events of the Old Testament and the gospel events of Christ... The Sabbath had become modified by the rabbis. Men and women were not to work, they were not to bear arms, and soon they were prevented from doing a whole host of things on the Sabbath. One of these things included the 39 prohibited activities surrounding the reaping of grain. You also couldn't tie anything, untie anything, write two or more letters, erase two or more letters. I'm not sure why you might erase two letters, but you couldn't do that. You get the picture. They had turned rest into work. Not only was it work trying to figure out whether you had broken the Sabbath or not, 
but it was work to try to get around all of those regulations. You know, it never ceases to, to uh, amuse me as I try to find new examples of ways to work around things. But still, my favorite one is this one. Throughout the week, families in preparation for the Sabbath in Jesus' time, if they wanted to travel any distance, because you weren't supposed to leave your home, they hid little stashes of food from their house in different parts around the city, and they were technically extending their home throughout the whole village. So they never left their home because food, does that make sense? It doesn't make any sense, does it? But work, work to try to get around the regulations. And it misses the point of the Sabbath. Jesus was about the Father's work all the time. His attitude, his motivation, his efforts were all focused upon and engaged in expanding God's kingdom and picking some grain to eat with his disciples did not in any way conflict with that labor. Nor did David asking to eat the holy bread conflict with that labor. As the Lord's anointed king... He needed to survive, and the Lord had provided for David and his men. And Jesus' point in Mark 2 is that the Sabbath was made for man. And what he means is this. Superimposing a bunch of rules over God's simple command to stop from our labors makes man a slave to the Sabbath. And that is not what God intended. He intended that this day would be a sign. We saw that. He intended that this day would be a refreshment, a time in which we do God's labor rather than our own. Instead of checking off a list of things that we cannot do and risk falling back into the religion of the Pharisees, it is better to focus upon what we can and ought to do on this day which God has given us as a gift. Simply put, the Lord's Day is a day in which we devote our lives to the Lord. We worship together, we fellowship together, we receive the sacraments, we learn the things of God. It's a day in which we hear the gospel, it's a day in which we extend the kingdom out to those who are in need. And where the Pharisees went off on the wrong track was to make man a slave of the Sabbath and to make a day that was meant to be centered upon the Lord instead becomes centered upon what people were not supposed to do. And ironically, what happens is this, and I alluded to it earlier, instead of glorifying God and proclaiming His righteousness by focusing on Him, the Pharisees ended up, through their systems, making everyone focus on man. And what does that do in the end? It exalts man's righteousness. It's sad because the Sabbath was a gift. And when you think of it that way, why are we so eager to get rid of it? If the Sabbath is a gift to us, why is it seen as a burden? It's only a burden when we fall back into the habits of the Pharisees. And when we really don't want to take a day, I'll, I'll say that again, when we really don't want to take a day to rest from our labors, That's when it becomes a burden. And what does that say about us? 
When Jesus says that he is Lord even of the Sabbath, we should see this as confirming the fact that the Lord's day is a gift. Jesus is the Lord of everything good. And when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, we need to then equate, if Jesus is the Lord of everything good, there isn't anything bad that he's the Lord of, right? If he is the Lord of everything good, then when he says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, put in the blank, the Sabbath is good. As B.B. Warfield once said, in one word, the Sabbath is the Lord's day, it's not ours. On it we do the Lord's work, not ours, that is our rest. Warfield went on to say man's true rest is not a rest from human earthly labor, but a rest for divine heavenly labor. We are to rest from our own focus upon ourselves that we may give ourselves to the focus of the things of God. And so I commend that to you. I I encourage you to evaluate whether what you contemplate doing on the Lord's Day each week is focusing on the things of God, whether it's extending His kingdom. There are many people who need His gospel, who need the labors of the Lord, not only the edifying and encouraging of one another in the body of Christ, but also in the sharing of the gospel to the lost. Now, as we return one final time to our passage in 1 Samuel 21, we read this in verse 7. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Dog the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. We'll see this man again in the next chapter, but it is not a pleasant meeting. Dog is described as being an Edomite and the chief of Saul's herdsmen, and It's interesting how we continue to see these contrasts between David, who is a type of Christ, and Saul, who is not, who is in opposition to the Lord. Here we see the righteous response of Ahimelech to David, God's anointed king, giving him bread, sustaining him. And we see in the shadows, Dog, a representative of Saul who will end up being responsible for the deaths of Ahimelech and his family. It said that he was an Edomite. You all know who the Edomites were? They were the descendants of Esau, right? Brother of Jacob and Esau's descendants, the Edomites, were longtime enemies of Israel. And as Saul's representative, this highlights even more how we see Saul You know, if we remember a month or two ago, we said, how should we see Saul? Was he saved? Was he not saved? Is he an enemy of God? Is he not? Well, over and over again, we see him as representing those who are opposed to God. And yet again, we see this in the symbolism of Dog is representative, lurking in the shadows, waiting to tell on David, putting Ahimelech to death, etc., And the Pharisees, in their hostility against David, are like Saul and Dog. They lurked in the shadows. They waited to trap Jesus. They wanted to put him to death. In Luke 6, 11, we read how the Pharisees, after Jesus healed on the Sabbath, were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. 
So besides the obvious principles about the Sabbath, how can we apply today? Because this, this is a passage that many of you might just normally read and go past and you know, think, well, David got some bread to eat and he was nourished and he went on his way as he's fleeing from Saul. Right? Just one more part in that narrative. Well, first, we can be reminded how God provides for his people. As David himself would later write, we can see it here in Psalm 34, Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David, fearful for his life, but not to the extent that he forgot his ultimate well-being was in God's hands. And look here how God provided for his needs. Second, David received nourishment from the holy bread of the tabernacle. But who is the living bread? It's Jesus. Is it not, as John 6, 51 brings out, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let us remember, physical bread nourishes, but it is the living bread of heaven that truly satisfies and brings life. David would later write of this day in Psalm 52. Psalm 52 is actually about this meeting at the place in Nob, at the tabernacle, and the confrontation ultimately with Dog. And in the first verses, David makes reference to Dog's return to Saul to tell the king that David had visited Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all the words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Well, like David, Jesus faced the, Philist, or the Pharisees. And like both David and Jesus, you and all of God's people suffer at the hands of those whose tongues plot destruction. But the encouragement from David is that the steadfast love of the Lord endures all the day and that he will break down the evil forever. The rest of the psalm reads that the righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. I didn't just say that David wrote referring to Dog as if we could insert Dog in here. This is actually attributed to the time that David was there at the tabernacle in Nob. And if we put together all of these experiences, David on the run, David in fear of his life, Dog lurking in the shadows, plotting for his destruction, Saul behind him, Remember this application. If you feel afflicted, do not despair. 
Not only does God provide the, for your physical needs as he did for David in the holy bread, but he has met your spiritual needs through Jesus, the living bread of heaven. And God is in control because we are able to trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. Right? I will thank you forever because the steadfast love of God is forever and ever and because you have done it. And so I will wait on your name for it is good. God is good. Let that be an encouragement to you today. Let's pray. Father, as we think upon all that you've done for us, I pray that, especially as we read what seems like a very simple passage today in 1 Samuel 21, that we would recognize, even there, some of the important things, important things that Centuries later, Jesus would bring up as a defense for why he and his disciples were eating grain in the field. And that's because, Lord, you have made and set apart this day for us, for your people, for man. You have made it a sign between us and you. You've made it as a gift for us to rest that we might do your labors. And it is a reminder for our gratitude and how you have sustained us. So, Lord, I pray that for the rest of today, that we would remember that thankfulness. And, Lord, we would wait upon your name, even for those who may be suffering today, those who are afflicted, that they would remember that the steadfast love of their God is forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray.